for Christmas, but they're always a blessing. It was fun having them here. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Mark chapter 12. Gospel of Mark, and the 12th chapter, as we're moving through this book of Mark, taking a chapter every week, and, and uh, we've come to the 12th chapter. You know, we always talk about that we need to love God, but what does it really mean to you to love God? If I, if I ask you to raise your hands if you love God, I'm sure most people here would say, yes, I, I love God. But what does that even mean? We can so easily say it, but what does it actually transmit into? Often when it comes to loving people, we don't even completely know what that means. But to love God is an even more difficult concept to grasp. It's actually, you know, maybe it's easier for women because when women have this romantic notion of love, and so often they kind of transpose God as being either, you know, the romantic figure in their life that their husband will never be or that no man could ever be. And so, you know, women kind of have that anthropomorphic kind of perspective of God as their lover. But I think for men, it's a little tougher. You know, and even some of the songs that we sing to God expressing our love to him. It's one of the reasons why men, I think, don't connect with church because so much of church is about loving a guy, you know, loving God, and it kind of creeps you out, and, and you're just like, I don't know, how, do, how does this transmit into actual life? And for most people, all they do is, you know, you might every once in a while think of it, okay, I love God. I guess I feel the way I ought to feel toward God, but I don't really know how you're supposed to feel toward God, but you can call it love. And so often all we do is just settle for, let's not think about it too much. But it's really important for us to understand what it means to love God. Because as we see here in Mark chapter 12, well, let's go ahead and look beginning with verse 28. One of the scribes came to Jesus. He had just seen Jesus having some discussions with some other religious leaders. And so one of the scribes was pretty impressed with Jesus and the answers that he was giving. And so he came to Jesus in verse 28 and said, what's the first commandment of all? See, the Jews in their law had over 600 commandments, at least, rules of things that they were supposed to do. And, you know, it's hard to know, hard to do them all. It's hard to even remember all the rules. And so they were going, can you boil it down? If there is one commandment that was important, and this was a discussion that the Jews had often, not an unusual discussion for them, what's the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him in verse 29, the first of all the commandments is, and then he quoted from Deuteronomy 6 what, what the Jews call the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Shema Israel is how the Shema starts. Here, Israel, the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And you didn't ask, but the second is very similar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, 
with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, nobody tried to quiz him or pin him down anymore. So this is something to take very seriously. We can say, well, I love God, but I don't know what it means. I love God, but I don't know what that really looks like. Um, Maybe I'm not even comfortable saying I love God. But Jesus says this is what the Bible's all about. Everything that God tells us to do, everything that he tries to persuade us to believe, all the do's and don'ts of the entire scriptures come down to this. Love God with everything that you are, every part of your being in every way possible. Love God and then love people. And all of that pretty much summarizes everything God wants you to do. So if this is true and this is what Jesus says, be good for us to figure out if we can What does it mean to love God? How is this manifest? Now, in the same way that loving people isn't easy to put a handle on it, and really, love is not, we often say it's more than a feeling, but in some ways, it's not a feeling at all. Love, when it comes right down to it, what you see it, it has to do with things that you do. Love, only when it's translated into action, is it really effective at all. You can have all kinds of warm feelings for someone, but if it doesn't translate into action, it really amounts to nothing. It's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, it's just a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. So loving God, as, as we find out in the Scriptures, <coughs> isn't just a nebulous feeling that you get of warmth and you know, kind of not knowing exactly what you feel, but you do feel some sentimentality toward God. But the whole reason why loving God describes the whole rule of Scripture is because in the Scriptures, God's telling us some things to do, but it turns out that love means doing certain things. There are actions that we can take that communicate love. And so it's only when we are doing certain things that we're really loving God. And this is more important than everything else, to boil it down to loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, in this 12th chapter, we will see several different teachings of Jesus that loving loving God is at the center of all of these things, as we'll see. Beginning of the chapter tells a parable of the wicked vine dressers. Verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat and he built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went away into a far country. Now, when it was vintage time, he sent a servant to the wine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. They took this servant, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. So he sent another servant. They threw stones at him, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. 
And again, the owner of the vineyard sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, Certainly they'll respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Now listen to this crazy thinking. This is his heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Nuts. So they took him, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus told this story, and it made the religious leaders of the day very uncomfortable. The story was simply, there was a guy who had a field, and he prepared it and made it ready for it to grow grapes and to make fine wine. Then he hired these guys to run the vineyard, and all they needed to do is give him a part of the, of the crop when the, when the grapes would ripen. But he sent a messenger, and they killed him. Sent a, another messenger, and they beat him up and stoned him. Sent another one, they did the same. Finally, the owner of the vineyard sent his own son. They killed him, thinking that somehow they would inherit the vineyard. They figured out he's talking about us, because they had already begun to plot against Jesus to kill him. And he was teaching that he was the son of God. Now, what do we figure out out of this, and what does this have to do with loving God? Well, first of all, the obvious thing. When, when you love God, it's going to show in the way that you treat his messengers, You can't act like you're loyal to the owner of the vineyard. And then when he sends people to you, including his own son, treat them like dirt. And here's the thing. In our lives, God sends messengers to us. Now, the Jewish people had a great history of this. God would rise up a a prophet who would come and tell them, here's what God wants you to know. Let me tell you something from God. And time and time again, those prophets would be treated horribly. Many of them killed or or just treated awfully. When they were speaking for God, the people didn't like the message, and so they would kill the messenger while at the same time professing a loyalty to God. And the message is kind of clear. Hey, if you respect God, you'll respect the people that he sends to you. Now, part of this means that those People who God raises up in positions of spiritual leadership are those who we should respect. The Bible says that those who minister the word of God to you should receive double honor. They need to be respected. But it's not because they are such great people. I would never get up here and say, you should respect me because of who I am. I There's nothing in me that's worthy of any great deal of respect. There's nothing that sets me apart as just being so superior to anyone else. The only thing I do that has any value at all is I can come to you and tell you what God says. 
I can open his word to you and try to communicate it to you. And as such, that's something that should be respected. And anyone who God sends to you to communicate his truth should be treated with respect. But be careful because that's not just people who are leaders in organized religion. The truth is God sends people to you all the time who are messengers of his, designed to tell you something. They may be members of your own family. They may be neighbors that you don't get along with. They may be people who you work with who really get on your nerves. There are some people who come into our lives that you just feel like, I want this person removed from my life. (laughs) But maybe the reason that you're bugged at them is they're bringing out something in your life that you really need to know something that you really need to hear. The Bible even says that be careful how you treat strangers because some people have entertained angels unaware that they were angels. There are some people who have had encounters with individuals not realizing that they were messengers from God, that they were angels. Now, obviously, if you have a love for God, It's going to show up in how you treat people that he sends to you as messengers. Remember when Jesus, right before he was heading down the Mount of Olives to go into Jerusalem riding on the donkey on that Palm Sunday, and he stopped and as he looked at Jerusalem, he stood on a little bluff overlooking this beautiful city and and he began to cry. And he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. How I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He said, I've been sending people to you and you've been killing them. You don't receive what I want to say through them. And that just breaks my heart because I sent you messengers who could have drawn you to me, who could have helped you to see how much I love you. But I send you messengers and you beat them up. You don't care about them. You don't respect them. You won't listen to what they have to say. I'm convinced a lot of times that God speaks to us through little kids and we don't want to listen to them. Sometimes they say simple things that are just so profound. But we're too busy to pay attention to what they have to say. I mean, they're just kids. If you love God, you really love him, one of the ways it's going to show is how you treat his messengers, whoever those messengers are. But here in this parable also, even a deeper and more fundamental truth is, who owns the vineyard? The problem with these guys is they didn't understand who the boss was. They didn't understand who they were working for. Now, the owner of the vineyard had a plan. As you you see in verse 1, planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. He made preparations. Now, the Bible teaches that each one of us has a place where God is calling us to serve. He has a plan to use us in order to minister to others. He has gifts that he has given us, a calling that he has on our lives. Now, the question is, are you going to do what he's called you to do? Are you going to farm that part of the vineyard that he entrusts to you? Or do you look at the land that he has given you that's your life and decide, 
you know, I have a better idea. Other things I could do with this land. Other things I could do with these talents. Now, there are some people who go, you know, I would be fine serving God, but God just hasn't opened the door for me to do that. Be careful. Sometimes what we think is, well, God hasn't opened a door, means that God isn't letting me do what I want to do. See, if they would put me up on a platform and let me speak, some of you go, that would kill me. Others of you think, Dave, I'm better than you, easy. (laughs) Give me a shot at it. And there are some people who just, they only want to serve God however they want to do it, whatever they perceive. If you want to know what God has called you to do, look where you are for starters. What are you doing in his vineyard with what he has entrusted to you? Are you taking opportunities that he has provided? Or are you going, as soon as he gets me out of this vineyard and into an office, then we're talking. Then I'll serve him. Then I'll do what he wants me to do. Every one of us, I believe, is in a place right now where God is preparing something for us to do where we are. And as long as we have our eyes on, i got to get out of here and do something else, we may miss the opportunity that God has called us to do right now. But all of that is contingent on whose vineyard it is, whose life is it, who is the one who has a right to tell us what to do. And so if we love God, we will respect his messengers the messages that they send, but also we will understand that he owns our lives and our talents and gifts and everything that we have. And so we will use them in the field that he put us in, doing what he has led us and given us opportunities to do. To do otherwise is not to love him at all. Now, and again, as you read about loving God with all your heart, It's an exclusive thing. That's why the Shema starts out by saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. (laughs) He insists on being the boss. It's his way or the highway. As someone has said, either Jesus Christ is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He can't sort of be Lord. He can't kind of be the boss. It's either complete and total devotion to him Or it's rejection of him ultimately, because that's the only options that he gives us. Now, as we read on his next encounter, this is with Pharisees and Herodians, which were generally mortal enemies, but they got together to try to trip Jesus up. And they came to him, and notice the way in verse 14 they butter him up. Verse 13 says they wanted to catch him in his words. So they start the way phony people often do. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you don't care about anybody. You don't regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. What a setup. Whenever somebody comes to you talking really glowing words about you, be careful. Often, they're just working you. I, some of the deepest stabs in my back have come from people who, to my face, professed undying devotion. It's just the way it works. So be careful whenever someone starts their conversation telling you how great you are. But then they finished it off by saying, so we just want to know, simple question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? 
They were being hypocritical, and he knew it. So he said, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it, a little coin. See, they wanted to trap him because the Jews in those days hated paying taxes, just like we do. And it was a real bone of contention that they were giving a portion of their income to, to Rome for Caesar. And there was a lot of sentiment thinking that the Messiah would come and deliver them from that burden completely. And so that's why they were setting him up, because the deal was this. If he told them, yeah, you should pay taxes, then all those poor people who were following him would see him as somebody who's just loyal to Rome. They would see him as not being sympathetic to the common person. <clears throat> they would look on him the way they would look on a politician who says, I promise to raise your taxes. Like, what? Because nobody wants to do that. On the other hand, if he said what was popular, don't worry, no taxes. You don't need to give your money to Caesar. Then he'd be in trouble with the Romans. And so they thought they had him over a barrel. So he said, give me a coin. And they gave it to him. And he goes, thanks. I'll pay my taxes now. No. <laughs> he said, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's picture was on the coin, and they said Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they go, oh boy, you got us there. Because what he was doing, he was saying, look, the money comes from Rome. So if they're going to take a part of it, fine. It's Caesar's, give it back to him. In other words, yeah, of course, pay your taxes. It's only money. But a deeper truth than that, he said, the reason you give that money to the government is because it has the government's inscription on it. But whose image is on you? Who has put their name on you? You are called children of God. You are professed as those who are governed by God. And the Jews knew from Genesis that they were created in the image of God. And so what Jesus was saying, go ahead and pay your taxes, but you don't tip God the way you tip the government. You don't see how little you can afford to give him and then give it to him. You don't say, okay, government, here's your pound of flesh. God, here's your pound. The rest is mine. He said, God has put his name and his image on you, and you belong completely to him. And so after taxes, the rest of it is God's. It's all in. Push it all on the table. It's everything that you are belongs to him. Now, you guys are religious leaders, and you're very sophisticated. How much are you giving God? In those days, the religious leaders were some of the wealthiest people in the town. They See, everybody had to tithe. Today, boy, churches would be so rich if people actually tithe. People give an average of less than 2%, according to studies, so imagine if all of a sudden, you know, we had five times as much money. Man, we could really fix this place up. But, but see, that's the way they were. But the leaders were thinking, hey, great for us. You're giving, we're spending. But he's calling them out and saying, you belong to God. You don't belong to you. You don't 
tip him like you do a waiter, everything that you have belongs to him. And again, that's so much of the idea of loving God with all, not with some, with everything. It's saying, you pay the government what they are due, now give God what he is due, and what you owe him is everything. Put it out there and give it to him. Does this mean you take all your money and give it to the church? No, of course not. But it means you at least put it on the table and say, God, what do you want me to do with your money? What do you want me to do with your time? What do you want me to do with your possessions that you've entrusted to me? Again, your God is your field. What do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with me? And so again, loving God, we see it here in the beginning of the chapter as we see he's the vine dresser. You do what he says. You let him be the boss. And, and you treat with respect all of his messengers that are sent to you. And then, secondly, you give him whatever's left after you pay your taxes. All that you have goes on the table for him. Now, next, the Sadducees came to him. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. I'm not going to take time to read the whole thing to you, but basically... They thought resurrection was stupid. (coughs) So they came to him with a question. They said, hey, you know how in the Old Testament it says that if a guy's married to a woman and he dies and hasn't had any kids, that if he has a single brother, the brother ought to marry his widow, and then their first kid you'd name after the dead brother. Now, there are a lot of people today who are grateful that we don't still have that tradition, but... They did it in those days. So they go, here's the hypothetical. Guy marries a girl, guy dies, girl marries her brother, he dies, girl marries another brother, he dies. Girl. Something's fishy. This girl keeps killing off these guys. I'd, <laughs> I'd check the stew. But he's saying, oh, so seven of them die, they don't have any kids, and they all go to heaven. Who is she married to? <laughs> she a Mormon by the time she gets to heaven or what? You know, but... but it was a ridiculous statement, and, and Jesus called them out for it and said, you're mistaken, verse 24, because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes on to straighten them out. He goes, look, in the resurrection, people aren't going to be married the way people are today. They'll be sexless beings like the angels are. And, and then he goes on to give them a tough one. He goes, you claim you believe in God. And God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is God the God of the living or the dead? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead when God said that. Why would he be talking about them like he's still their God? And they were like, okay, forget it. Never mind. Sadducees were done. But the thing I want you to notice here is what was wrong with the Sadducees is the same thing that's wrong with us every time we mess up. It's the same thing that gets us into every jam that we're ever in. It's the same thing that makes our lives miserable, our relationships tortuous, not knowing the Word of God and not knowing the power of God. As he said in verse 24, you're mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures You don't know the power of God. The scriptures teach us the power of God. Everything we do wrong comes because we really don't know what God says or we don't believe what he says, and that's the same thing. Every wrong feeling that we have, every bit of anxiety and stress and depression and all of that 
comes because we don't know the power of God. We don't realize what he can do. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Studying his word gives us confidence in his power. So, if you love God, you're certainly going to want to be hungry for his word. You're going to study what he has to say. You're going to want to memorize what he has to say. You can't say that you love somebody, but you don't want to hear what they have to say. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't connect. If you love God, you'll have a hunger for his word. Now, There are some people who are great readers, voracious readers, and often some of those people still don't read the Word of God. They read a bunch of other stuff. But you might say, yeah, but for me, I mean, I'm not a good reader. I'm dyslexic, or, you know, I've never really learned to read. I had a friend who never learned to read. He was one of the toughest guys I ever knew, and so he would just beat people up if they made fun of him for not being able to read. He'd beat people up if they wouldn't do his homework, and he would be, you know, and, and so he came to the Lord, and he would hear people talking about reading the Word of God, and he came to me, and he goes, I, you know, Dave, I, I've never told people this, but I don't know how to read. He had bluffed his way through life. He was in his 30s at the time, didn't know how to read, and we connected him with some people to give him some help, and think he got hooked on phonics for a while and everything, but, but basically, he, he went and got himself a children's Bible with pictures and everything, and he, here he is, this tough guy, and he's carrying this little kid's Bible around with him all the time because he wanted to hear from God. Now, it took us a while before we got him to stop beating people up, so, you know, carrying the children's Bible was often accompanied by you know, various events. But, um, but what was amazing is he began to learn to read by reading God's Word. He wanted to hear from God so badly that he learned to read using the Bible. And it was so amazing. He'd start to come up to us and, and just say, man, you know what God showed me? And he'd start telling you some verse, and he'd have it kind of mixed up a little bit. But, but he's like, hearing from God from the Word of God, and he's telling it to you like he thinks you've never heard it. And I'm thinking how we take for granted our ability to hear from God by reading his Word, but you can't really say you love him if you don't want to listen to him, if you don't want and have a hunger for his Word. And that translates into understanding his power. And so again, I don't care how good you feel about God and how many songs you sing to God, if you're not studying the Scriptures, you really don't love God. It's pretty simple. Now looking on in the chapter, and we'll have to get through this quickly, he down in verse 35, Jesus was talking to them as he was teaching in the temple, and he said, how is it that the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he's quoting King David and and saying how he said, The Lord said unto my Lord, talking about the Messiah. So verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? The common people heard him gladly. He said, You guys know that the Messiah is supposed to be descended from David. But how come David calls the Messiah Lord? He's more than 
a descendant of David. That's why he's referring to him as Lord because he's not just the son of David. He's also the son of God, and that's what Jesus had been trying to communicate to them. Now, Lord means you are supreme. You are above all. You can't have God be your Lord unless you've laid it all on the table. Lord is a very exclusive thing. It requires all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. As someone has said, Jesus, unless he is the Lord of all, he is not the Lord at all. Lord is an all or nothing proposition. And so if you love God, you're going to make him the Lord. You're going to make him the boss. You're going to put him in charge completely and totally as as Jesus is teaching here in so many different ways. Now notice that the common people heard him gladly. Jesus presented a simple message that regular people appreciated and they could understand it. But the religious leaders were often not so enthusiastic. And so he next warns about the scribes. Verse 38, he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. But they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He said, be careful of religious people. Just really watch it. See, the common people are responding to him. The religious people are arguing with him. And it's understanding that he didn't come to complicate your lives. And it's not about me. It's not about putting me on a stage so that I can perform. It's not about getting a bunch of people to to bow down to a person. It's about calling people to the lordship of God, of Jesus Christ, and long prayers that he talks about. Charles Spurgeon said that people who pray long in public probably pray short in private. And people who pray long in private will pray short in public. It's doing religion for show. It's playing the game. It's going through a role. It's pretense. It's phony. And he goes, be careful. That's not what it's about. God isn't saying, love me, so therefore get yourself all dressed up and fancy and put on a big production for me. Well, simple people understood, no, that's not what it's about. It's about being real with God. It's again about putting everything on the table, devoting yourself completely to him, making him the Lord, making him the boss of the vineyard, making him the one that you want to hear what he has to say. This isn't about playing games. This isn't about faking it. Now, I guess if he hated long prayers, he probably hates long sermons too. So let me wrap this up. (laughs) Greater condemnation to people who dress themselves up to get the attention in religion. Now, verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Made a big deal about what they gave. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which made a quadrant. These are just two little coins that were worth less than a penny. I was just in Israel, and now those mites are kind of expensive. But he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. He said, it's not how much you do for God. It's how much you do with what you have for God. He wants you to give sacrificially, not just like give a little extra when you have it, not just, you know, say, tip him the way you'd tip a waiter, but it's taking everything that you have. And again, this isn't like give all your money to the church. That's not it at all. Give to the church whatever God tells you to give. But first, start by taking everything that you have and saying, this is God's and I am only a caretaker of it. Now, what am I going to do? And this sometimes means giving sacrificially, giving beyond what's comfortable, giving outside your zone of security. And Jesus points out this little lady and says, this is what I'm talking about. There's somebody who's devoted to God. Here's someone who loves God. Because she didn't have hardly anything, but she was willing to lay it on the line, to give it, to offer it. And so... That's the whole point. You love God. It's about what you do. And what you do involves going all in. Sorry to use a a Texas Hold'em phrase, but it's to take everything that you have and to go, it's all yours, God. It's all yours. I want to hear from you. I want to do whatever you tell me to do. I belong to you. You're the boss. You're the Lord. And anything less than that is not loving God at all. How do you think a person would feel if you said, I want to marry you and spend the next several years with you? (laughs) And I'm ready to sign up for, say, three years, and let's see how it works. And then beyond that, it's renewable. And you know what? My love for you will be probably only given for a handful of other people. I'll be with you, and I'll be with a few other people, but hey, let's face it, I can't find a lot of candidates. So, But you'll have a part of me, I promise you. You'd go, what? That's what you're promising? And yet how many of us come to God in the same way? And we say, Lord, we'll call you Lord. Like Peter sometimes would say, not so, Lord. I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I want to do it. And I'll give you whatever I don't need. And God, when I wear something out, it's yours. (laughs) Promise you. (laughs) What kind of love is that? It's not love at all. And Jesus here communicates to us and reminds us, no, loving God is an all or nothing proposition. It's everything or it's nothing. Now, that's not easy to take. It's much easier just to buy in, just to put a little something out there and see what happens. But really, everything in the Word of God is telling you this, love God with all, all. Anything less? You're missing the point of this book. Anything less than total devotion to him is not very impressive to him. 
And that's what he's telling us. That's what he calls us from his word. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to say we love you if we don't think about it too much. And it's easy to throw a few minutes at you and a few bucks at you. But everything, that's not easy. And yet, Lord, we, we open this book because we want it to change our lives. We study it because we want to learn how to live. And your word declares clearly what that takes, and it's everything. Lord, we want to do that. Give us the strength by your spirit that every time we grab onto something in our lives and act like it's ours, that we will be reminded of the commitment that we made to you to love you with all Lord, we can only do that if you help us. So please do, Lord. We thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. You know, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I know this doesn't sound easy.